there, and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's Davis Now Lectures podcast with me, Cleon and Ian Lund. This episode is a talk from the 2002 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, The University of the People, 100 Years of the Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. In his talk, Reading, Writing and Rebelling, Growing Up with the Public Libraries, Irish writer, critic and journalist Fintan O'Toole references writers from Voltaire to Enid Blyton and Hubert Butler to Richard Brinsley Sheridan and says how acquiring a first library card is in its way an entry into the public community of readers and how by encouraging people to educate themselves libraries are rather subversive places. Fintan O'Toole's lecture was recorded in the then recently opened library in Blanchardstown Civic Centre in Dublin 15 in 2002. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I was asked to address the topic of readers' experience of the libraries, and because nobody can really talk about anybody else's experience of reading, <laughs> it's one of those private pleasures. I'm going to have to talk about myself to some extent, but I uh, hope you'll bear with me. Some of my own earliest memories are of holding the hollow aluminium bar of the pram in which my mother was pushing my little sister as we walked all the way from Crumlin to our nearest public library, which was miles away in Thomas Street. I associate that walk with smells, the pungent stench of the canal, the dark, hot attack of boiling tar where new roads were being laid around Pimlico, the raw, savage reek of Keefe's the Knackers where old animals were melted down for glue. As we got closer to the library, the smells became warmer, more inviting. The milky fragrance of fresh, yeasty bread from St Catherine's Bakery, the sharp, rich, mysterious odour of hops from the Guinness Brewery. And finally, the dank, musty aroma of old wood and books in the library itself. Maybe it's this primitive journey of the senses that made me associate public libraries with an emerging awareness of the sensations that the world contained. Maybe it's the fact that I later discovered that the new library in Dolphin's Barn, which was built when I was a teenager, was a great place to meet girls under the guise of seeking a quiet place to study that makes me think of public libraries as somehow sexy. But whether or not these are just perverse personal associations, it has long seemed to me that public libraries matter a great deal. They matter not because they're part of the infrastructure of public education, though of course they are that, but because they represent a different kind of education from what you can get in school. They are, in a very specific sense, an instrument of private education, an education in what it means to have a private self. They're public institutions that touch on the most intimate parts of an emerging personality, the parts from which the ability to rebel against orthodoxy and authority may come. And they offer the prospect that that emergence can continue as long as life itself does. To say that the library offers a kind of private education is not to suggest that the reader who uses it is isolated from the community or cut off from the surrounding society. On the contrary, what you learn at the library is something almost unique in life, a shared privacy. The child who begins to borrow books from a library becomes aware at more or less the same time of two things. One is the solitary pleasure of reading as an arena in which you are free from outside interference. The other is that this pleasure has been and is being experienced by many others in their own time and in their own way. One of the simple things that a library adds to a book 
is that white sheet gummed into the inside cover or the title page, stamped with the dates on which other people who borrowed it before you were supposed to return it. In this banal bureaucratic record, there is a lesson to be learned. Books, like their authors, have biographies. They've passed through other hands. The private experience you're having is one that is also shared. In A History of Reading, the Argentinian scholar Alberto Mangel writes that the child learning to read is admitted into the communal memory by way of books and thereby becomes acquainted with a common past which he or she renews to a greater or lesser degree in every reading. This idea of a communal memory contained in books is one whose significance becomes clear when we imagine its absence. In Ray Bradbury's dystopian science fiction novel Fahrenheit 451, the title referring to the temperature at which books burn, a police state employs firemen not to put out fires but to incinerate all literature. But there are wandering book savers who preserve lost books by committing them to memory. And this image is not, alas, an essentially fictional one. Alberto Mangel recalls that one of his teachers in Buenos Aires told him about his father, who was murdered by the Nazis in Sachsenhausen concentration camp. He had been a famous scholar who knew many of the classics by heart and who offered himself as a library to be read by his fellow inmates of the concentration camp. I imagine the old man in that murky, relentless, hopeless place approached with a request for Virgil or Euripides, opening himself up to a given page and reciting the ancient words for his bookless readers. Every library, however ordinary it may seem, is haunted by these human libraries, these thin barriers of flesh and blood that are sometimes all that stands between the memory of civilization and the brutal amnesia of barbarism. Every library, therefore, also holds within itself the seeds of a revolt against indignity. The entry into the common memory of books is also an entry into full humanity. In medieval Jewish society on the feast of Shavuot, when Moses received the Torah from God, fathers took their young sons to the teacher. The teacher showed the boy a slate with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet on it. Then the slate was covered with honey and the child licked it off. Or in another version of the ritual, biblical verses were written on peeled, hard-boiled eggs, which the child ate. The point of these rituals was to mark the sense in which the power to read was a passage into the public world. From the rudimentary communication of early childhood to access to the common store of knowledge that made you fully human. The honey and the eggs were, I suppose, versions of the apple from the tree of knowledge that got you exiled from the idyllic world of childhood innocence into the real world of grown-up life. We don't have these kinds of rituals in our culture or in our time, but for my generation at least, there was a very good substitute, the acquisition of your first library card. Filling out the form was the first experience in self-identification name, address, parents. The library card itself was, in a very real sense, an identity card. It was a passport that named you as a citizen, not of a political nation, but of the world of books. It marked you as a member of the public community of readers, 
the people who shared in the collective memory that was contained between covers. The question that arises for us now is whether in the transition from a library culture to one where books are acquired commercially as part of a private monetary transaction, we have not lost this public dimension of private reading. And if we have, whether we think about a future for the public libraries which might strive to recover this dimension of their past histories. There is, of course, a great deal of common sense in the notion that what matters are the books we read and not the way they fall into our hands. Whether we buy them from a shop, inherit them from our parents or borrow them from a library, at some important levels, of course, it really doesn't matter. Reflecting on my own experience, however, it does seem to me that there are some ways in which the experience of reading from a public library is unique and that some aspects of this uniqueness really do teach us things that we can't quite learn elsewhere. What I want to do very briefly is to touch on what those things might be. The first and perhaps most obvious is that a borrowed book is not part of the furniture of the house. It is a strange, unfamiliar object introduced into familiar surroundings. One of the great things about borrowing a book was that you got to bring it home and that the book itself, in a way, transformed the house. I grew up in a small two-bedroomed corporation house which was inhabited by three adults and five children, so space was at a premium. But a book made the space bigger by opening up private imaginative rooms. Long before I ever imagined that there were even more interesting things that you might want to do in bed, for example, I was struck by the way a book made a bed a place where forbidden things could happen. Reading in bed with a torch under the covers is most people's introduction to the notion of forbidden delight. The warning from adults that it will make you blind only reinforces the connection. <laughs> the fact that a book was borrowed rather than owned added to the excitement. Firstly, because the book itself was a kind of temporary exotic guest. And secondly, because the pressure of time, the awareness of a looming deadline for the return of the book, made you read more intensely. The next aspect of reading that was specifically learned from the library was one that generally features in every cliched depiction of libraries themselves. It seems to me that perhaps the most revolutionary word of all the millions contained in any public library is the one that is the butt of so many cartoons and comedy sketches, silence. It's easy to forget that for most of history, reading was done aloud, a practice which imposed a certain hierarchy of power with a leader or a priest or a teacher setting the tone, inserting interpretations, perhaps glossing over awkward or dangerous passages. And this was still the experience of most of us at school in my childhood. You read aloud, either alone or in a group, under scrutiny all the time. It was the libraries that taught us that the natural condition of reading was silence. That silence sign that seemed to be just another form of authority was in fact an invitation to freedom. For when you read silently, you read with complete freedom. Nobody quite knows what you're up to when you're reading silently. I first grasped this in the reference room of Dolphin's Barn Library. 
Word had spread among us 12-year-olds that there was a dictionary of Australian slang which had under the letters F-U-C-K a most extraordinary array of lurid and vivid vulgarities. I was sampling this forbidden fruit one day when an adult walked into the room. For a second, I panicked, thinking that I was caught. And then it struck me with the force of a revelation that the adult had no way of knowing what I was actually reading. So long as the cover looked respectable, you could roam in the secret garden and do so more or less to your heart's content. This was something I'm not sure that I could have learned so forcefully without the library. The third uniquely educational aspect of the library has to do with what it teaches us about categories of knowledge and how to subvert them. The idea of the library not just as a storehouse of books but as a system of organised access to all that is known goes all the way back to Callimachus of Cyrene who catalogued the great library of Alexandria in the 3rd century BC. The struggle of libraries in the 23 centuries since then has been to categorise knowledge in as comprehensive a manner as possible. A library at one level is like an orderly chicken coop where the books sit brooding like hens in their neat rows of nests. But every library user, on the other hand, is a fox among these chickens, frightening the established order of knowledge into panic-stricken scatterings. Uh, when I was thinking about this lecture, I, I just started to try to draw up a list of books I remember reading myself uh, and borrowing from the library between the ages of about 8 and 13. And I came up with Billy Bunter and Herman Melville, Jonathan Swift and Enid Blyton, Just William and Teach Yourself Yoga, Shakespeare and the History of Stalingrad, The French Revolution and the Tomb of Tutankhamun, Lady Gregory's retelling of Cuchulain and Captain W.E. John's Tales of Biggles, Sherlock Holmes and the trashy historical novels, which I discovered were the books that were most likely to come within a whisker of actually mentioning sex. I still remember, in fact, the electrifying thrill of encountering the word breast instead of bosom uh, for the first time, though the novel itself is long and, I suspect, deservedly forgotten. <laughs> At one level, this kind of literary promiscuity is evidence, perhaps, of a lack of rigour and discipline, which maybe has stayed with me throughout the rest of my life. But in a sense, that is precisely its power. What the higgledy-piggledy assemblage of books in a public library, at least as used by a, a real reader, taught me, at least, was to read without assumptions. We all had an idea what category a book belonged in, what window of the genre we were supposed to be looking through when we read it. But we had no way of knowing that some of these books were classics and others were rubbish, that Shakespeare was better for us than Richmond Compton, who wrote the Just William books, or that Moby Dick had to be read with more respect than Billy Bunter. And that lack of discrimination, I think, was deeply and radically educational. As a reader, in a library, you had to discover for yourself differences of form and style and quality. And I still have some lingering opinions from that time of unformed, unpoliced consumption of books. I still think, for example, that the conclusion I drew when I was 12, which was that Richmond Compton, at her best, is as much a genius as Herman Melville or Charles Dickens, is just about right. 
And I still think that knowledge is at its most potent when it draws on different categories of experience. This, I think, is the reason why I still prefer secondhand bookshops with their almost random collection of books to more organized bookstores. It's also why I have the infuriating habit, infuriating at least to myself, of buying books that I have no intention of reading at the time, leaving them forgotten until some particular impulse or other draws me back to them maybe years later. And I think in, in those habits of buying books or reading books, I'm trying to recreate the experience of a public library where you walk along the shelves and you find out something that you didn't know you had uh, and are suddenly drawn to it and, and that that in itself becomes a part of the way that your thought process is assembled. Now, it seems to me that all of these unique aspects of what is learned from using a public library have a particular role in the production of two kinds of people, writers and rebels. And that this role is one of the reasons why the struggle to establish public libraries has been a particularly hard one. It's not, it seems to me, accidental that one of the great original forces in the establishment of generally accessible libraries in Ireland was arguably the most genuinely radical movement in Irish history, the United Irishman. It's not accidental either that the early history of the county libraries in this state was bedeviled by the controversy over Lennox Robinson's short story, The Madonna of Schlieve Dunn, which ultimately led to the Central Library Advisory Committee in Dublin abolishing itself and being transferred to Dunfermline. The early county library committees, as Hubert Butler, uh, who was himself a county librarian for quite a few years, put it, quote, regarded books as dangerous tools. They plainly thought, he wrote, that it was their mission to supervise reading rather than to read themselves, and probably believed that no thinking was better than wrong thinking. As Voltaire put it satirically, books dissipate ignorance, the custodian and safeguard of well-policed states. Or as Richard Brinsley Sheridan uh, has his character Sir Anthony Absolute say in The Rivals, a circulating library in a town is an evergreen tree of diabolical knowledge. In a beautiful modern library like this, and in a lecture series that's been celebrating the history of Irish public libraries, it's easy to forget that the truest compliments to libraries are the backhanded ones of censorship and marginalisation. Or to forget, for example, that one of the most innovative libraries in Dublin, that which was established by the Bakers Union in the 1940s, was deliberately broken up and sold off under conservative pressure in the 1950s. Or indeed that one of the responses of the state in the hard times of the 1980s, when mass unemployment perhaps threatened a degree of social discontent, was to virtually close down the public library service. These backhanded compliments were in their own way an acknowledgement that self-education is a dangerous thing. And that by encouraging people to educate themselves, libraries are rather subversive institutions. The labour and socialist movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, for example, were largely the creation of people who had to leave school in childhood and who educated themselves from public libraries. It's often forgotten that what those people read were not for the most part books about politics or economics, but the eclectic sweep through science, philosophy, history and poetry that libraries offered them. As Jonathan Ray has put it, socialists were bookish, but their books were not socialist. It was arguably the experience of entering into the collective memory, 
of breaking down the categories of knowledge, of finding private spaces within themselves that was actually more important than the content of what they read. And this finally is where it seems to me the future of public libraries lie. I'm struck by two challenging things that I've read in the journal on Lowerland, both written by practicing Irish librarians. One is Patricia Quigley's challenge to libraries and to librarians to think of themselves not as educators, but as springboards to other people's self-education. She puts it very well where she talks about the fact that librarians are probably taught to think of themselves as sort of neutral in a way. She says librarians currently see themselves as neutral and are proud of their neutrality. But what does this mean in practice? In my experience as a public librarian, it means merely responding to requests instead of actively inviting people to make demands. It means referring users to bibliographies instead of discussing their inquiry with them. It means merely smiling encouragingly at self-proclaimed learners instead of engaging them in dialogue to ascertain their plans and needs and how the library can help. It means processing users instead of interacting with them. I think the way in which the public libraries are changing those categories and are seeing themselves as ways in which people can interact with the process of self-education is a really important sign for the future. The other notion that struck me is from an essay by Phil Scanlon, who was and perhaps still is the librarian in, in Charleville Mall, where she says that, and I quote, the public library is a product of the commitment to freedom for freedom's sake. The essential role is to subvert the status quo. The library should not provide an argument for a particular case, but demonstrate that there is always another case to be made. That notion that the library is a place that has no agenda other than allowing people to invent their own agendas is what makes it an indispensable resource for a democracy. It is where we can learn not just to be readers, but to be the authors of our own destiny. Thank you. That was Fintan O'Toole and his talk, Reading, Writing and Rebelling, Growing Up with the Public Libraries. Look out for more talks from this series and subscribe to the Davis Now Lectures for talks on a host of subjects where you get your podcasts. The Davis Now Lectures website is rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. From me, producer Cleanelli Anlun, thank you for listening. <laughs>